the Lord, the true Savior of the world, the God who created us, and the God who redeemed us. We give our time to you just now, Father, as we turn to the Bible. I pray that you'd reveal yourself to us in a really special way. I ask for anyone today, God, who maybe for them this is not a usual experience. I ask, God, that you would draw them to yourself and they would suddenly feel at home with God. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd build up believers and encourage those who aren't yet there, bring them to this place of faith. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome. Let me add my welcome to Sammy and to Jordan. My name is Pete, uh, pastor here at Destiny. And it's a privilege as we move into this Christmas season to now take time just to each week look at Jesus and what he came to accomplish 2,000 years ago. Uh, Let me start with a story. There was a a mafia boss's son, uh, and it was coming towards Christmas, and he decided he wanted to write a Christmas letter to Jesus. So he sat down in 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 his dad's study with a piece of paper, and he started writing, Dear Jesus, I've been a really good boy all year. Please can I have a brand new bicycle? And he thought, Oh, that. And he scrunched it up and threw it in the bin. He got another piece of paper out and he said, Okay, dear Jesus, I've been fairly good at points this year. (laughs) Please, could I? And he thought, That's not true either. And he scrunched it up into a ball and threw it into the bin. And he came up with a new idea. He went off to his mum's room and there in his mum's room was a statue of Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary. And he, he found an old rug, wrapped the statue of Mary in the rug, put it under his arm, tiptoed downstairs, down to the understair cupboard, put the statue of Mary in the cupboards, closed the door, locked it, put the key in his pocket, and then he went back to his dad's study and he got a piece of paper and said, Dear Jesus, I've got your mother. If you want to see her again, please can I have a brand new bicycle? <laughs> That's how the mafia do it. Uh, Mary, the whole idea of the virgin birth is a remarkable idea. But nevertheless, I believe it's an historical truth. It was actually predicted hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Let me read you this verse from, a famous verse from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Here's what Isaiah the prophet says. He says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Say that phrase with me. God with us. You see, the big miracle here actually wasn't the virgin birth. I mean, that's a miracle. Boy, is it a miracle. But that wasn't the big miracle. The big miracle here was the reality that God, the uncontainable God, the eternal God, the immortal God, took on human flesh. The uncontainable God became present in a baby. The omnipresent God became present in the human race. It's an incredible moment, a world-changing moment, and for you, it can actually be a life-changing truth. My question is this, why did he become a man? It was such a remarkable moment in history. I remember uh, hearing of the, the first moon landings, and apparently a fifth of the world's population watched as the first moon landing happens on live television. James Irwin, one of the astronauts involved with the moon landing, one of the the few human beings to ever have stood on the surface of the moon, he said this, the most significant achievement of our age is not that man stood on the moon, but rather that God in Christ stood on the earth. 
And the question I've got is this. Why did God become a man? And I've got two reasons for us. The first reason is he became a man in order to reveal himself to us, to become understandable. Jesus, in our interaction with his disciples one day, was asked the question by Philip, one of his disciples. This is recorded in John chapter 14. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, um, when Jesus was born, the mystery about God was over. All of a sudden, there was God for everyone to see. Jesus is perfect theology. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks about sickness? Look at how Jesus interacted with the sick. You want to know what God thinks about sinners like us? Look at how Jesus treated sinners. You want to know what God thinks about injustice and religious hypocrisy and racism? Look at how Jesus dealt with those very important issues in his generation. Jesus is perfect theology. The mystery about God was over. There was God for all to see. Now, when rich people are born or wealthy people are born or successful people are born or successful people have babies, they obviously make a big deal about that birth. In fact, I was reading many of the rich and famous spend a lot of money on the maternity hospital and the birth process. Jay-Z and Beyonce chose Lenox Hill Hospital in Manhattan. Costs $2,500 a day to have a maternity suite there. In the maternity suite, it was a luxurious place with mahogany walls, hardwood floors, and luxury linen, and, and a kitchenette, their own kitchenette. And if they wanted, they could have had a haircut, they could have had a manicure, and a pedicure, or a massage. Not sure that would have been on their minds, but it was all available to them at $2,500 a day. And then we have uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and P, uh, P. Diddy. They chose Mount Sinai Hospital for the birth of their children. Cost $4,000 a day. And they have a stunning view in that suite of Central Park in downtown Manhattan. And then the top of the, the, top of the A-list for anyone wanting a really spectacular birth for their kids and anyone who can afford it is uh, the Matilda Hospital in Hong Kong, which will cost you $20,000 to as a deposit to book your room. And you've got to book your room seven months in advance. And you have this amazing ocean view from and a balcony from your birthing suite. Now, the only person who was able to choose where he was born, Jesus Christ, he chose straw poverty. I mean, you look at it. He chose a mother, Mary, who actually was a teenage girl who was poor. She didn't really have great prospects, most probably was illiterate. She was engaged to a carpenter. And we know they were poor because when Jesus was born, after eight days, as is the Jewish custom, they would circumcise the child and they would offer a sacrifice. And, but instead of offering a lamb, they offered doves, which in the Old Testament was a poor person's offering. Jesus was born into a poor family. It says in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on high and in a holy place and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. You know where God likes hanging out? Likes hanging out in a high, honorable place called heaven. But he also just loves hanging out with humble people. 
You know, gave birth to Jesus in a stable. Mary gave birth to Jesus and laid him in an animal's feeding trough. His birth was announced to shepherds who in those days were viewed in a very dubious light with great suspicion. He was born into an environment that was smelly. There was flies, there was dung, there was animal smells. And yet God chose this. Bono, the lead singer of U2, on returning from a long tour, and it was Christmas Eve, he returned back to Dublin, and he decided to go to a Christmas Eve service at St. Patrick's Cathedral in the city. And as he arrived, it was pretty full, so there was not many seats left. So he was given a seat which was just stuck behind a pillar. But nevertheless, he was in that environment and in that atmosphere, considering the birth of Jesus and hearing the Bible readings and hearing the carols. And it's like he had an epiphany moment. He suddenly realized the magnitude and the glories of Christmas. And this is, in his own words, this is how he described it. He said this, the idea that God would seek to explain himself was amazing enough. That he would seek to explain himself and describe himself by becoming a child born in straw poverty, in dirt, in straw. A child. I just thought, wow. Just the poetry. Unknowable love. Unknowable power describes itself in the most vulnerable. Tears came streaming down my face, and I saw the genius of this. Stunning. God chose this kind of birth. Wow. Augustine, the great early father of the church, he said, he said it in a stunning way. He said, filling the world, he lies in a manger. He who is almighty became so frail in Jesus Christ. And who were the disciples? Well, they were a motley crew, fishermen, tax collectors, even a political activist, Simon the Zealot. You know, it wasn't the typical choice or the ideal choice, and yet it was God's choice. Jesus was a friend of sinners. In fact, that was the accusation mounted against him. Oh, he's a friend of drunkards and tax collectors and sinners. Jesus actually wore it as a badge of honor. Yeah, cool. I'll hang it with it. I'll hang it with those people. Jesus just came down to people's level. His credentials at first glance are rather simple. Never went to college or received a formal education. Never wrote a book or any articles. In spite of this, more songs have been sung about him. More books written about him. More articles published about him. More paintings painted of him. More books written about him than any other person who has ever lived. His words are now held in highest regard. His biography, the Bible, is the world's all-time bestseller. His life on earth only lasted a brief 33 years. And his ministry actually was only in three years at the end of his 33-year life. He lived most of his life as a carpenter. And in three years in his teaching, he's changed the world more than anyone else has, even given their entire lifespan. His teachings have become the basis for the majority of the aid organizations you see around you in the world alleviating poverty, for the legal system in the United Kingdom, based on the teachings of Jesus, healthcare systems, education system that you and I all benefit from, based on the teachings of Jesus Christ, hospitals, education, aid organizations, care for orphans and widows, the alleviation of slavery, all based on the teachings of Jesus. When the time was coming for his crucifixion, he arrived in, G in Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy predicted hundreds of years before in Zechariah chapter 9, where it says, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted 
on a donkey. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So this king comes on a donkey. He's humble, but he's the king of kings. He's not just over a little bit of land. He's the king to the ends of the earth for all eternity. Currently, he is the bonafide ruler of planet earth. Jesus gave us the most remarkable model of leadership. Just before his crucifixion on the night that he was betrayed, he was with his disciples. And uh, as we're going to have communion at the end of this uh, service today, Jesus broke bread with his disciples. But part of that whole evening, he, he noticed that no one had washed the disciples' feet. It was customary when you arrived in a guest house that a slave would wash your feet because of all the dust and the muck that you'd gather with your sandals uh, in those dusty areas of the world. Jesus noticed no one had washed the feet. So Jesus himself wrapped a towel around his waist and he got down with a basin of water and he washed each of the disciples' feet. And having done that and left an indelible memory on their minds, he said to them in Mark chapter 10, he said, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And we know that, folks. We know that the rich and famous want to dominate people. But Jesus, who is the richest and the most famous, he said this, and the great men exercise authority over them, but it's not that way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that was his description of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A lady who had the privilege of spending time with two consecutive prime ministers in the UK. Uh, she described the experience of hanging out with these two prime ministers. And she said about the first one, she says, when I was with the first prime minister, I knew I was in the presence of greatness. And then she said, when she was with the second prime minister, she said, he made me feel so great. And the thing about Jesus, he's the greatest of all. And yet there was something about the way he interacted with people that just elevated people, that lifted them from where they were and that brought them into a new place. And he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. God was revealing himself in the coming of Jesus. And then he died a criminal's death. He died on a cross. It was always the plan of God that Jesus would die. But it looks so cruel. It looks so wrong. It was the ultimate rejection of God by the human race. And all of us are guilty of that. It's described for us in Philippians chapter 2, and it says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. In other words, when Jesus became a man, he set aside his divine prerogatives and limited his activity to being that as a human being. He, 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 he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Isn't that awesome? And you know that when it says that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That, 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 that is actually a quote from Isaiah 45, where God, Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the true God, the creator, 
declares, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. There is a, this is, Jesus isn't just a man. He is a man, but he's fully God. God had become a man. And in, in his resurrection on the third day, who did he appear to? Well, he appeared to women. I mean, in those days, I mean, you and I think, well, nothing of that. But in those days, women were viewed in a very dim light. Women, in fact, if you were a woman, you couldn't testify in a court hearing. Your testimony was not credible in a court hearing. And yet, it was to women that Jesus chose first to reveal himself after his resurrection. Why? Because Jesus wasn't trying to prove a point. He just thought, I'd like to see them. You see, if I was Jesus, I think I'd have gone knocking on Pontius Pilate's door. Hey, you're the one I crucified. You, you crucified me. You got it wrong. I think I would have been turning up to the Pharisees, ah, giving them, freaking them out. I think I'd be doing that. But that's not Jesus' style. Jesus appeared to women. I love how God revealed himself. One of the greatest antagonists against the church and Jesus in those early days of the Christian church was a man called Saul of Tarsus. Saul, he had a conversion experience on the Damascus Road, and he became the great apostle Paul. He went from hating Jesus and hating the church to becoming a lover of Jesus and a builder of the church. But let me just read to you this uh, monologue that I came across, and it's, it's just imagining what Saul, who became Paul, would have said about Jesus and how he changed his mind. Listen to this. I love this. He says, when as Saul of Tarsus, I made my own independent evaluation of the man called Jesus of Nazareth. I investigated into his life to see if this leader of this Nazarene sect was worth anything or not. I made my own independent evaluation of what he was worth. I was not unfair. I was not unkind. I applied to him all the normal natural standards that would be applied to any life to evaluate for evaluating it in any age. I applied to him the normal standards for determining the worth of an individual in any time. I looked first at his ancestry and discovered that there was a cloud around his birth right from the very start. As I investigated it, it became quite clear that he was the illegitimate son of a faithless woman who had been taken in by a kind-hearted carpenter who raised him as his own son. But he was an outcast from the beginning. And socially, he was worth absolutely nothing. I investigated his professional standing. And I discovered that he was born of peasant stock. And had attended no schools. He had a simple, he had a simple career as a carpenter in a village that had no standing in Israel. And professionally, he was worth absolutely nothing. As Saul of Tarsus... I investigated his theological and his ecclesiastical backgrounds. I found that he had not sat at anybody's feet. He had gone to no seminary to have education, and he had no ecclesiastical or theological training. In fact, he was repudiated by all the ecclesiastical authorities of his day. He was nothing but an incorrigible street preacher and a rabble-rouser. And as far as his professional, ecclesiastical, and theological standing was concerned, he was worth absolutely nothing. Furthermore, I looked into his standing financially. I found that he had no bank account, that he was born in a cave, he was laid in a borrowed manger, he lived in other people's homes, he was an incorrigible scrounger, he was always borrowing things, 
He borrowed money to pay his taxes. He borrowed his clothes from other people. He rode on a borrowed donkey. He died in a borrowed cross, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Financially, from the standpoint of accumulating the world's goods, he was worth absolutely nothing. So as I investigated and applied all the normal standards by which any life is evaluated, I discovered that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was not worth following. He was worth nothing. But on the Damascus Road, something happens. There in a blinding flash, in a moment of time, I looked into the face of a man and I saw God. I discovered that he whom I thought was worth nothing was Lord of everything. He's the God of glory. He was the, the world and the universe was upheld by his word of his power. He is behind all things and he is the very imprint of the image of God. There I found that he whom I thought was nothing was everything. And I whom I thought to be everything was nothing. And in that moment, I came to a tremendous reversal of my values Later I learned that I who is nothing could be filled with him who is everything and he could make my life something. Jesus Christ is the most outstanding person and he is God and worthy of your life, worship and adoration. Why did God do it this way? I mean, you've all had the conversations like I have with friends who say, hey, if God's there, why doesn't he just appear in the sky and say, ta-da, I'm God's? It's not God's style. Why did he do it this way? In fact, it says in Proverbs 25, verse 2, it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Well, this is God's education method. It's like God's game of hide and seek. The most important things in life, you think about it, are the things that you and I have discovered not the things that were handed to us in a plate. Love. We value it because we discovered it. Our purpose in life, we value it because we discovered it. Gold, which takes so much time to mine, we value it because of the effort it took to discover it. The things you value are the things you had to discover. They weren't just handed to you in a plate. And God understands this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of us kings to search out the matter. Why does God do it this way? He does it this way so that the genuine, the humble, the honest seeker, the person of faith could find him. Jeremiah twenty-nine thirteen, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So the question is today, do you want God? Do you want him? Do you want God? Or do you just want to live your life as if he's not there? Do you want God? I don't mean do you want God the version of God that's presented through warped religion. I don't mean that. I don't mean the, the version of God that the, his haters, the atheists, portray. I don't mean that. I mean the true God as seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you want God? Why else did he become a man? I think he became a man, first of all, to reveal himself. But number two, he became a man to reveal his love. One of the last trips I took with my dear dad last year, I took him to Krakow in Poland and we went to see Auschwitz. Dad grew up uh, during the time of the war. He was a teenager during those war years and he was very aware of the Holocaust and all that took place. And for dad, 
it was an important place to visit and to be reminded of the horrors of that era. And as we went around Auschwitz, one of the stories that stood out to me was the story of a man by the name of Maximilian Klopp. He was a Catholic priest serving in Krakow during the time of the war. And in Krakow, he helped shelter refugees, including 2,000 Jews. Doing so made him a target, and he was eventually arrested, and he was sent to Auschwitz. The end of July 1941, a prisoner from Auschwitz had escaped. And as retribution for the escape of one prisoner, the SS decided that they would put to death 10 inmates as a disincentive for anyone else thinking that they should escape. So they rounded up 10 people and the sentence was that they would be starved to death in the SS headquarters basement. And uh, one man who was randomly chosen, one of these 10, was a man by the name of Franciszek. And he cried out when he was chosen to be put to death, he cried out, my wife and my children. At that point, Maximilian Klopp stood forward and said, I will take his place. And Maximilian Klopp took the place of this man, Franciszek, and he died in his place, a horrible, painful death by, by starvation. As the years passed, Franciszek actually survived Auschwitz, one of the few who did. And he lived on into the 1990s as an old man. But in an interview he was given, he was referring back to this man, Maximilian Klopp, who literally took his place and was his substitute. And this is what he said about him, and I love this. He said, so he did this to a translator, he said, so long as he had breath in his lungs, he would consider it his duty to tell people about the heroic act of love by Maximilian Klopp. Isn't it incredible that this man had a life because someone else substituted his life? That's remarkable. But let's take it to a whole new level. The one who was dying 2,000 years ago at the cross was none other than God, the creator of the universe. You are seriously, seriously loved. God substitutes himself for you and for me. Why did God become a man? As it says, virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Why did God come to be with us? Well, he needed to be a man in order to be a substitute. He needed to be one of us in order to die for all of us. And why the virgin birth? Well, he had to be born, otherwise he couldn't have been a man. But he had to be born of a virgin. You see, every single one of us is born with a sinful human nature. We've inherited it from our ancestors since the very beginning, since the rebellion took place at the creation, shortly after creation. We've all inherited a sinful nature because we're the product of two human beings procreating and producing after their kind. But Jesus Christ was conceived in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. He wasn't the product of two human beings. He was a human being. He started life from that point of conception as all human beings do. But he was out with a sin nature. You see, apparently in the womb of a mother, the blood of the child and the blood of the mother never mix. The, the goodness from the mother's blood passes to the child's blood, but there is no mixing of blood, and therefore Jesus' blood was not contaminated with any fallen human race bloodline. Jesus Christ was born fully human, absolutely, but he was also born without a sinful nature. And only as a sinless man could he die on behalf. 
of sinful people like us. Jesus Christ died in our place. Homer Simpson, the great theologian in The Simpsons, he said this, the Bible is full of messed up people, except for this one guy. Jesus Christ is the only sinless man. He was fully man, yes, and fully God. And that makes that act of his death and resurrection 2,000 years ago all of a sudden become not just an historical act, it brings it right into the present. It is an eternal act. It is as powerful today as it was 2,000 years ago, as if you were standing at the very feet of the cross and his blood was actually dripping onto you directly. It's just as powerful today as it would be if you were standing at the cross. Why? Because that person who died for you on the cross is God and God is alive and God is eternal and God is with you right now and God wants to redeem you through the act he did historically 2,000 years ago but the power of that act is relevant. Now, you can be cleansed. You can be forgiven. You can have an eternal life through Jesus Christ who lives forever. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. You see, if you're, if you're trained as a lifesaver, you're taught that you can't save someone who's drowning until they stop trying to save themselves. As they're thrashing around in the water, you can't do anything for them. You gotta say, relax, stop trying to save yourself and let me save you. In life, there's lots of things you can save yourself from. You know, you might, save you, you might have saved yourself from bankruptcy. You, you saw the predicament you were in. You worked really hard. You made some wise decisions and you turned the thing around. Maybe you saved your own marriage. Maybe you saw where it was going and you took the advice and you got the input and you made some changes in yourself and, hey, you saved your own marriage. But there are some things you cannot save yourself from. You cannot save yourself from your moral debt, your sin. You cannot save yourself from the fact of your death that will ensue in your life. But Jesus Christ, the ultimate saviour, can save you from these things. He took on flesh so that he could take our sin upon himself. He took our flesh upon him so he could take our sin upon him. And he died our death so that instead of dying, you can have eternal life. And yes, you'll die, but it'll be merely a transition into the reality that you've already come to know, that relationship with God. You can be saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. Saved from Satan saved from sin and saved from death. So I asked you earlier, do you want God? Not religion's version of God, not the hater's version of God, but the true God as seen in Jesus Christ. And secondly, do you want saved? You can't save yourself, but God remarkably, as a revelation of his great love, did all that was necessary to save you from all the things you could not save yourself from. Let's pray. Father, I just want to say thank you. Thank you, eternally thank you. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your power to transform lives. Thank you, God, that you're with us right now and thank you you're present in this room here and but you're present where everyone else is listening just now. Just where you are just now, take a moment to pray your own response to God. Christmas is all about this great God and it's all about this great God who prioritized you and I. He loves you more than you could even love yourself. Just start where you are. Maybe you're already a believer. Just start worshipping him who did all this for you. Start giving him thanks. Start giving him praise. But maybe you're here today and you're, 
and you're not there, you're not yet there with God. And the question I've asked is, do you want him? Do you want God? God doesn't force himself on anyone, but he and his love presents himself to the world. And I've done my best to present his presentation of himself to you. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's working in your soul just now. And if you're, you're there just now and you're saying, Peter, I want God. I don't understand all the answers, but I want God. Then this is your moment. If you say, I ask the other question, do you want saved? You can't save yourself. Do you want saved from your sins? If you're saying, Peter, I want saved, then this is your moment. And I'm just going to help you. I'm going to pray a prayer. But I invite you to the, that you would maybe make this your prayer. That you would use this as your opportunity to say yes to God and accept and receive his salvation. So pray this prayer with me just now. Just one line at a time. Say, dear Lord God, thank you for loving me. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place on the cross so that I can be forgiven and have eternal life. I believe that you rose from the dead. I believe you're alive right now. Take first place in my life. I declare Jesus is Lord of my life. Thank you for hearing my prayer and accepting me today as yours.